Friday morning, our family had the joy, really, of honoring the Lord Jesus Christ for one of his choice servants. We were able to honor the Lord for his goodness and the gift of Carol Ringer. Many of you knew her and miss her, as we do. We had that memorial here and then a brief graveside and it was a joy to be able to reflect on her life and think about the fact that Carol spent her life really in the service of Christ. She lived like her Lord, she resembled her Lord. She looked eagerly to the kingdom of heaven. And I think it's fair to say, using the language of Paul, that Carol died daily which is why in the end, she died well. There is that moment, I know you've been to a graveside, I trust you have at some point in your life, and there is that, that moment at every graveside where the speaker ends up completing whatever he was gonna say and people stare and they gaze at that coffin and they they gaze at that gaping hole that appears like a, a mouth ready to swallow the beloved. And the heartache at that time <clears throat> is almost inescapable. It's painful. And the, the service attendant from the mortuary stood up in front of the crowd there and as is his, his task, he's trying to find appropriate words and fitting words and I don't know where he was coming from but he said and I quote, he announced to, to, to us there, quote, Carol is now going to be lowered down into her final resting place. It was all I could do to constrain myself. <laughs> A, that was Carol's body. It was her earthly tent. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Carol took her last breath on earth and inhaled the rarefied air of heaven. Carol's earthly tent went into that grave, into that open mouth, but the scriptures are quite clear that that is not her final resting place, that is not even the resting place for her body. For that body will be reconstituted as only God can do and God did in the first place in her mother's womb and whether you die at sea or die on a car accident or you die in the middle of the Sahara Desert, if you're in Christ, your body is coming up out of that grave and it is going to be joined to your soul in the sky and you will then dwell eternally in a glorified body just like Jesus's. That is the truth. In fact, the scriptures teach that everyone will be reconciled either unto life or unto judgment. It's interesting, he, he, he told us that he wanted to let us know that this was gonna be Carol's final resting place and sometimes this moment gets to be too big for people. So if anyone was interested in leaving, 
before the body went down into the grave, we were welcome to go, and I am glad to tell you that nobody left. You see, beloved, because a Christian's death does not constitute panic. Grief, yes, but a tempered grief. There is no fear in the Christian's death. There is no fear in the Christian's life. There should be no fear of the grave And there should be no doubt that the deceased in Christ will in fact rise again. And we give glory to God, don't we, for the gift of salvation. The question this morning, beloved, is how will it be in your dying day? How will it go for you? The Bible teaches us very clearly that it is possible, in fact, It's probable, and I would say it's ultimately desirable and even a responsibility to the Christian to live out their days without fear in the face of death. We have got to buck up as we think about that future day. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, therefore since the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ himself, also partook of the same. He came to earth and took on human nature so that he might redeem his people. It says that he he himself partook of the same so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Did you hear it? Christ came for the express purpose of setting you free from the fear of death. It doesn't take much to realize that men live their lives seeking to insulate themselves from death and the fear of death. People will turn to anything to keep them from thinking about it. Listen, Christ has conquered death And as a Christian, you truly believe that. You must believe that. And he he came in human flesh. He came born of a woman. He came born under the law to keep a law, to fulfill a law that you and I could not keep. All the law does for sinners is bring the knowledge of sin. It simply tripped us up and taught us that we were in need of a Savior. But Christ kept that law perfectly. He fulfilled it every jot and tittle. And he fulfilled all righteousness. And it is a righteousness then that he possesses that qualifies for heaven. And he gives that righteousness freely to anyone who trusts in him. And beyond that, not only does he give a free righteousness, but he gives a full forgiveness. Christ gave himself the Lamb of God in death as a substitute for all who would hope in him for life. The irony really of this is that Jesus through death conquers death. And he stripped the devil of his power and he sets us free from the fear of death. And the goal really this morning is just to take some time. You might be wondering as some have asked, why did you deviate from Philippians? We don't deviate very often, but this week I just needed to swim in these realities as I was preparing for Carol's memorial. 
And the goal this morning, beloved, is, is to tell you things that you already know, but to strengthen you in them and to give you, again, the scriptures that undergird all those things that we believe. And I want you to see that you have nothing to fear in death at all. You have no need to be panicked. You have no need to fret. It is not something for a Christian to meet with a stiff upper lip. And it's nothing that we are merely resigned to. No, in fact, it's far beyond that. The Christian not only wants to face death without fear, but we need to understand what the goal of our death is. And really, the goal of our death is no different than the goal of our life. It is to be pleasing to him in everything and to glorify him in everything that we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, or whether we die. Christ is to be exalted. My hope this morning as we contemplate what amounts to a very brief conversation between Jesus and Peter, at least that which is recorded for us in John's gospel, my hope is that your fears will be quieted and that your heart will be comforted and that you will be strengthened as you consider the inevitability of your own death. Look at John chapter 21. I want to read these verses from verse 15 down to verse 19. This is after Christ was raised from the dead and he finishes some breakfast with his disciples and we pick up. It says, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? You remember that Peter declared that even if he had to die with Jesus, he would be faithful to the bitter end. And he said, even if, even if all of these, looking across his brothers, his fellow disciples, even if all of these deny you, not I. And so Jesus asks this very poignant question and he says, do you love me more than these, Peter? Jesus said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him again, tend my sheep. You remember that this all comes on the heels of a very humbling moment in Peter's life because he declared his loyalty and yet in the moment of trial he failed. And you remember Jesus had said to him in advance, Peter, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And that's precisely what happened, which is why Jesus comes through and gives Peter really this this three-part question, this, this, this three-part affirmation really of his own love to try and both humble Peter and get from Peter the understanding that, you know, Peter, there's hope with me. It's not over because you denied me. 
I'm a forgiving savior. And Jesus wanted his fears quieted and wanted his hearts, his heart comforted. And Jesus wanted Peter to even understand, Peter, I'm calling you back into ministry. I want you to take care of my church. And the victorious life of Peter on the heels of this was just amazing. That passage is very familiar. The next one is not. And really, it's all the same context. And I I want to point you to the words that follow this morning. This will serve as our text. And I want you to see the tenderness of Christ as he continues to work with, with this humbled servant, Peter. Verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Father, these are your words and your word is powerful, it's living, it's active. And we ask that you would send it forth to accomplish your purposes And Lord, that you might comfort your people, that you might bring many to faith. And Lord, that we would trust you more as we anticipate the day of our departure. Help us to this end, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I want to give you just kind of a four-point outline here that, that, that we'll hang this text from. First of all, the inevitability of death. I'll go through these again, but I just want to give them to you up front. The inevitability of death our confidence in death, our objective in death, and our mandate until death. And these four things, I think, amount to insights that we can glean from this passage right into the dying day. And they help us understand how it is that we glorify the Lord in it. Let's look first at the inevitability of death. There is no question, you know this, that the only two things certain in life are death and death. Well, higher taxes at this point, I guess. Death is certain. Death is inevitable. If the Lord does not return and take us unto himself, you will run out of tarmac. The Bible says that the soul that sins shall die. The Bible teaches that there are none righteous, no, not one, And that all have fallen short of the glory of God. That is to say that each and every human being has fallen short of the perfect righteousness of God. Which is what is required to get into heaven. And to to dwell with God eternally. We must be made like him. We must be morally perfect. And the question is obvious. How then can a man be made perfect who is a sinner? We'll answer that question later What I want you to see is that if you are a sinner here this morning, and you are, you will die. That is inevitable. Now look at verse 18. Jesus begins with these words, truly, truly, I say to you. Whenever you hear truly, truly, I say to you, it is time to listen up. It is time for Peter to focus. This is a sober moment. This is a very solemn pronouncement. 
What Jesus has to say here is very significant, and he's saying, Peter, listen to me. When you were younger, you used to gird yourself. That's a reference to, to, to girding up your loins, to putting a belt about those, those long kind of garments that they would wear in that first century. You would pull them up and you would, you would gird yourself about with this belt. And Jesus says to him, you would walk wherever you wished. In other words, Peter, you could do what you wanted. You would wake up in the morning, you would put on your clothing, and you would ready yourself for the day, and you would think to yourself, Peter, what do you want to do today? And Peter would either pursue some leisure thing that he wanted to do, or he would go to work if it was time to work, but Peter was making decisions for his life. Just like you and me. He had the freedom to get up and to fasten his belt and to go about his day. But by contrast, Jesus is forecasting a day for Peter in the distant future when things are going to be very different. Look at it. When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, when you get old, There is going to be a day that you are going to die. You are going to be marched off to a death. And you are going to be girded by someone else and you are going to stretch out your hands and they they will tie you up, if you will, with a belt. And they will lead you where you do not wish to go. And this may be a reference to the fact that Peter was just being what we would call handcuffed. But if you read the early church fathers, most of them took it to mean clearly that Jesus was going to have, or that Peter was going to, to have his hands stretched out and that he would be bound, girded to the crossbeam of a cross. That he was going to have to, to, to have his hands tied to that beam and he was going to have to haul that beam up the hill to where he would be crucified, where the Roman soldiers under Nero would fix that cross beam to the vertical beam and he would be dropped into a hole just as his Lord had been. Peter was going to be bound and he was going to stretch out his hands in crucifixion. The commentator William Hendrickson says, The expression to stretch out the hands is often used by Greek authors and by the early church fathers to indicate crucifixion. In other words, it may very well be that what Jesus was saying here to Peter is, Peter, you used to go where you wanted to go, but a day is coming when you get older where you are going to die on the cross as I did. And that's precisely what happened according to church history. Peter was, in fact, martyred during Nero's reign in the mid-60s. Listen to a passage, just a couple of verses I want to read to you from 2 Peter chapter 1. Here's Peter years later in his older years, and he writes these things. He says, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, in other words, as long as I'm in my body, to stir you up by way of reminder knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And 
And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter says, look, to his audience, I'm about to die. The Lord's told me all about it. And it's no trouble for me to remind you of these things again because you need to cling to these things after I'm gone. You see, Peter lived in light of his death. Peter knew what the Lord had said to him. Now let's be clear about the nature of death. Death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. And Jesus hints at this, doesn't he, in verse 18 when he tells Peter, you're going to be taken to a place you do not want to go. Death is not a pleasant thing. So we don't want to candy coat that at all. The Bible teaches, and by our own experience we know this, that death is terrible. It is not a natural part of life. It is not, you know, Lion King, the, sight, the circle of life. There's nothing beautiful about that. Man was never intended to die. It's a curse, and it's a black intruder. It is the consequence of sin. And there is a terrible and a painful separation. There is a, there is a tearing that happens in death. Anytime you hear the word death, you should think about separation. That really is, is what it is. In physical death, our bodies are separated, torn from our soul, from our immaterial part. We are separated in spiritual death from God who created us. It separates us from the blessings and joys of life. And we all know this, don't we? That, that there are many things in life to rejoice in. We all enjoy going to Lake Tahoe. We all delight in a sunrise. We know the, the pleasure of taste buds and good food. And we know what it is to be fearfully and wonderfully made and be able to enjoy exercise. And all that doesn't even touch the relational elements of life, which are certainly best. All of that, my friends, did not just happen to you. It is God's gift to you. And the amazing thing about the gift of God and all that he has given to us is that the vast majority of humanity never even pauses long enough to thank him. Not for the air they breathe, not for the food they eat, not for the family they've been given, not for the health they've been given. They credit themselves, they credit their bank account, they credit their wisdom and their intuition. Friend, every single good thing in your life is a gift from God. And the unique thing about God is that he gives that to people who despise him, to people who don't even acknowledge him. Death separates us from all the good things in life, separates us from our loved ones. And that's excruciatingly painful. Pain beyond description, really, as I've experienced it in life. Death separates us from joy, and it brings grief. And Peter is hearing Jesus, and Peter is getting his life kind of laid out in front of him. And he, he has, I suppose, what could be taken in some ways as a blessing in that at least he knows he's going to live till he's an old man. I'm not sure I'd want to know, would you? <laughs> it's a grace, really, that God in some ways keeps this from us. 
we'd surely make a mess of our lives if we knew the day and the time. Now listen, if that were the end of the story, if this was all the Bible had to say about death, death would truly be a tragedy. It would all be misery and it would all be darkness and it would be utterly defeating. And death would, in fact, leave us dominated by fear if that were the end. But here's the thing. Christ has overcome. That changes everything. He has risen from the dead, which ensures the the rising from the dead for all who would hope in him. That's why Paul writes to the Thessalonians that we are those who grieve in death, yes, but not as those without hope. Because Christ is coming again to take us to himself. Ecclesiastes 7.1 tells us that for the Christian, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. I read to you earlier, Romans 8.11, that the resurrection of Jesus ensures that all who are indwelled by his spirit will in fact be raised from the dead themselves. I love these words, Revelation 14.13, the spirit of God says to his people, blessed are they, you remember that word, happy, glad, rejoicing. Blessed are they who die in the Lord from now on. Jesus changed death entirely. I just love it in 1 Corinthians 15, 44, or 54 to 55, Paul starts talking trash. He, he sings a taunt song to death when he says, look, death is swallowed up in victory. He pictures death going into the, into the grave. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your, your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, do you see what God is trying to do here for Peter? Do you see what Jesus is doing for Peter? He is helping Peter to think about death and to consider his life in light of death. And I love that. I personally love Christ for the fact that he prepares us for us. He hasn't just saved us, but he has spoken truth into us through the word of God so that we might be able to look at death and not faint in fear. Death has become nothing more than a servant And an ugly servant at that, but a servant who simply ushers us into greater and more glorious life. A life that's more glorious, frankly, than we can imagine. Let's come back to our text. Why does Jesus say these things to Peter? And again, there's something very tender in this, isn't there? That that Jesus would be preparing Peter to to think through things, to understand in advance. Here's here's where this is going to go, Peter. Don't let this stumble you. Don't let this trouble you. And the Lord does this very thing for us. You remember in the book of Mark in particular, Jesus had been telling his disciples over and over and over again, chapters 8, 9, 10, he, he just keeps going and he says, look, here's what's going to happen to me. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to, to, to evil men. They are going to crucify me and I am going to die and then I'm going to be raised up on the third day. And he keeps telling them this and telling them this and they don't get it. 
What was Jesus trying to do? Well, he tells us, he says, so that you may be kept from stumbling. He was trying to prepare them so that they wouldn't be so disillusioned by what happened. Instead, they could reflect back and think, you know, he told us this was what was going to happen. They couldn't imagine it. Beloved, when, when your day comes to pass, you want to be armed with Jesus and you want to be armed with the truth of Scripture. You want to know these things that we're talking about so that you can stand firm in confident hope. We looked at the inevitability of death. This is our second point, and that is our confidence in death. Our confidence in death. Truly, truly, I say to you that when you were younger, you used to gird yourself, walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. Think about the implication of those words, not just for Peter, but for you. First, God has ordained, brother, sister in Christ, God has ordained for you the means of your death. Have you ever thought about it? Jesus told Peter not only that he was going to die, but how he was going to die. The death that had been appointed for him. He would be bound and he would be martyred by crucifixion for Christ. And so it is for you. You will one day die, maybe in a dramatic moment, maybe, maybe in something more slow and progressive. Maybe you will die of old age, whatever that means. I don't know what the Lord has for you, and I don't know what the Lord has for me, but I do know this. He has something, and he's keeping it. He knows what it is, and that is immensely comforting when you get a cancer diagnosis. That is incredibly comforting when you lose a child in a car accident. There's really nothing else that matters in moments like that than the knowledge that God is in this. This isn't a stroke of bad luck. I didn't draw the short end of the stick. God is in the details of your dying day. And really, you need look no further than the cross of Christ to see that, right? I love, I love those words that are recorded for us, the prayer of Jesus' disciples as they were gathered in the book of Acts at the start of, of the church and all that was going on. And you see this persecution beginning to happen and here the saints are gathered and the, here's their prayer, just part of it. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. He's your anointed. He was the one who sent by you. Truly there were gathered in this city against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, get this, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Who killed Jesus? The Gentiles? Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Was it Pontius Pilate who's responsible for the death of Christ? Was it Herod? If you keep tracing those dominoes of second effects back all the way to the one who pushed the first domino, you will find that it is the father who crushed his son. 
Jesus' death was not up for grabs. It had been predestined. In fact, all of those people and all the machinery and all the circumstances worked together to fulfill what God had spoken through the prophets in the Old Testament, right? We know that. I ask you, could Jesus have been killed under the age of two by Herod's henchmen? Could Jesus have been pushed off that cliff by that crowd that wanted to murder him? And you remember, he gets to the edge of the cliff and he simply walks straight through the crowd and they split like the Red Sea. There was nothing clearer when the Romans came to arrest Christ and they asked him, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I am. And a whole legion of Roman soldiers go falling backwards like dominoes. The point in all of that is, look, I'm in charge of this, not you. The disciples were so shaken, weren't they, in the middle of that stormy sea as Jesus slept in the back? Was he going to go down with the ship? It could not be. And beloved, you'll have to receive it by faith. But I trust I'm not just blowing smoke. There's Bible behind what I'm saying. I tell you, it is just the same for you. Your dying day is in the hand of a good God. Nothing happens to you by accident. Nothing occurs in this world by happenstance. You did not drive faster than your guardian angel could fly. And you have got to understand, all of you, that you can go ahead if you want and you can, you can get on a vegan diet, but understand this, that it will not prolong your days. Eating well will give you perhaps a healthier life until the day that God has appointed to take you home. But no amount of avoiding beef is going to rescue you from the day that God has appointed for you. And you say, yeah, but what about the devil? I mean, the, devil, the devil's strong, the devil's mighty, the devil is powerful. And I say to you, yeah, look at Job. Who is in charge of all that Job went through? Well, Satan certainly strikes Job with boils, and Job ultimately says what? That that, that came from the hand of the Lord. You get to the end of the book, and you see that Job was comforted by all those that the Lord had restored to him, and, and they say to him, they come to him to comfort him for all of the, the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Do you see, there's, there's no sense in Scripture at all that somehow the devil or the grim reaper or chance or any of these other things that everybody puts their stock in can just sort of run around freewheeling and do what they want, and your goal in life is to avoid all the, all the pitfalls. It's a dishonor to God to think that way because he's in charge, because he loves you. God knows the how of your death, and you can trust him with it. Secondly, God knows the time of your death. He's ordained it. As I said earlier, Peter's death would not be in his youth. It was going to be when he got old. And if you think about it, Peter was invincible until he was old. Nobody could do anything to Peter because God had already ordained. It would be when he was old. 
You look at all of those, perhaps you've seen them, those famous medieval paintings of Peter's martyrdom. There are two things that are always the same in those paintings. One is that Peter is old, and the other is that Peter is crucified upside down. And we'll get to that later. But, beloved, the point is this, that this is, this is not a universe out of control. R.C. Sproul put it, there is no rogue Adam in the universe. It's ruled by a sovereign God, and he is sovereign over the day of your death and mine. Listen to Psalm 139 and verse 16. Better yet, write it down, memorize it, anchor it. It will help you when you find yourself threatened by death. Psalm 139:16. in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. What is he saying? That before you were even born, as God was knitting you together in your mother's womb, there was a date on his calendar, not only the day you would be born, but the, there was an expiration date. And in fact, Jesus tells us that we can do nothing to change the expiration date. Not even by a little bit. Matthew 6, 27, Jesus asked this question in the context of worry. You remember it? And he says, and who of you, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? That's 18 inches. That's one step. How many of you are going to get one step further than the point that Jesus has ordained for you in this life? He answered the question. Nobody, no amount of worrying will, will, will accomplish that for you. Give up worrying. Why are you worried about death? God's got you. He's got this. You don't have to live your life anymore calculating all the odds. You don't have to control every outcome. The world, beloved, gets its hope from odds. You get that? The world gets its hope from odds. But we're not the world. God doesn't manage his universe according to statistical analysis. Sometimes, actually more often than sometimes, particularly in certain, around certain people, I, 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 uh, I take some good-natured ribbing for the fact that I ride a motorcycle. I've heard them all. You don't need to bring more. A murder cycle, you know, da 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 I get it. I think the last time I talked about this, I told you the story about how Susie and I were leaving this great campsite and, and some lady that we had met, her and her husband, the night before, and apparently she spent the night so panicked in her trailer for Susie sitting on the back of that bike that she came and gave Susie not one, not two, but three St. Christopher medals, right, to hang around her, her neck. She probably was right on as far as my riding skills, but... I, <laughs> She was missing the point somewhere else. I, I bought a used bike the other day up in Reno, and when I brought it home and I got underneath it to look at it, I found something that I had seen on other bikes, but I'd, I never really pursued it. They're called guardian bells. They always have weird pictures of weird, weird creatures on them, and I didn't really know what they were or were for. Well, I looked it up on Amazon just in case anybody wants to buy some, don't. Here's what I read. Legend has it that evil road spirits have been latching themselves onto motorcycles for as long as there have been bikes on the road. 
These evil road spirits are responsible for mechanical problems and bad luck along a journey. They didn't really want to say it, but we know what they mean. Legend goes on to say that by attaching a small bell onto your bike, the evil road spirits will become trapped inside the bell where the constant ringing drives them insane, making them to lose their grip until they fall to the ground. And then they have the audacity to add, you ever wonder where potholes come from? Apparently, I, I read this, that, that it carries twice as much power when it's purchased by a friend or a loved one and given as a gift, which I assume is just Amazon trying to sell these things, but you laugh rightfully. That is silly and that is superstitious. But I'm going to ask you, if the Lord were to take me home this week on that bike, How many of you would come to my memorial and secretly sit there and ask these questions? You know, if you hadn't been on a bike, if you'd have been in a car and just had a little more around him, what would have happened, I wonder, if he would have taken a different road home? What if you had just left work five minutes later? Maybe just three minutes later. What if David had taken that CHP class and actually learned to drive, right? <laughs> These are the questions we ask, and why do we ask them? Because we're not convinced of this truth. We are not convinced yet that God is sovereign over every death, every time, without fail. He knows the means of that death and ultimately, my friend, car crash, cancer, COVID, it doesn't matter. That is utterly secondary to anything we're actually talking about here. What we're talking about is the God who created us and saved us for himself. He rules over this life. We know him, we trust him, and we live in light of that. And we need to shed these foolish ideas that, that somehow things just happen to people. We do not trust in fortune. We place no confidence in superstitious practices trying to stave off the grim reaper. No, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And he has a day, an exact moment when your death is marked on his calendar you can't add anything to it, and he just wants you to rest and trust him for it. Parents, that's true for your children. Do you fret? God's got them. And you say, well, are you telling me that God's not going to let my child die? No. You guys are well enough aware. My cousin's 22-year-old child, car accident and died. Prime of life. And yet God is sustaining them through it amazingly, amazingly. We've got to keep moving. Here's the thing. You know that God has the day, the time, the means all in hand. And my question to you this morning is this. Does this comfort you or does this concern you? Is this something that produces in you a sense of 
of anxiety or a healthy sense of anticipation for the good things that God has waiting for you in the future? Does this thing strike fear in your heart or does it somehow free you to live life out from under the shadow of the fear of death? I'll tell you this, it boils down really as I think about it to two things. One is your understanding and confidence in the word of God. Do you know it and do you believe it? You need, you need both parts of that, right? It doesn't help you to know something that you don't trust. Do you know what the scriptures teach and then do you trust those scriptures? And then this second thing is what is your view of God? Do you know and believe the Bible and do you know God? Do you know what he's like? Is he a God in heaven waiting to just whack you for your latest whatever and, 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 and thrust you to the side in life with, without concern for you? Or is he the God who, who is good and loving and gracious and only has your best at heart? Do you trust the Bible when it says that Jesus conquered death and that all who hope in him will in fact be carried into heaven? You see, I'm thankful as I hear these things, as I contemplate them, to know that I'm in the hands of a God who is wise and good. And believer in Christ, you have every reason to trust God. We sing it, isn't he good? Isn't he kind? Hasn't he blessed us time after time? Why is death gonna be any different for us? Beloved, he will be with you in the day of your distress and he will never let you down. He will not do it. He is intimately and providentially involved in every aspect of your dying. Listen to Psalm 116.15. Precious in the sight of God is the death of his godly ones. Precious in his sight. He's not, he, you didn't die because he failed to pay attention. No, it's precious to him. And he is intimately acquainted with it and he is attentive to you at all times and he will not abandon us in that moment. There will be grace to meet the day of our need. Now there's one more diamond in these verses that I wanna show you. Not only has God ordained the means and the timing of our death, but he's ordained the end of it, its goal. Look at verse 19 with me. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death, this is Jesus to Peter, he was telling Peter by what kind of death, look at these words, they're precious, underline them, that he would glorify God. We think a lot, don't we, about glorifying God in life. Do you ever think about glorifying God in your death, in that dying day? This is our objective in death. This is our, our third point. It's our objective. God uses the death of his people to glorify himself. God did that on Friday with Carol. Many people stood up to give testimony to God about Carol's life. She was his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, and we testified to them. And we attributed them not so much to Carol as to the God who created her and saved her and changed her, filled her with his spirit. In Peter's life, it looked like this. Peter was bound, he was led to crucifixion. I told you we'd come back to it, but Peter, according to church history, according to tradition, said, said to his executioners, I cannot, I am not worthy of being crucified like Christ. I want you to crucify me upside down. Peter was crucified head first. 
he wanted his death to say something about the worthiness of his Savior. And most of us, beloved, are not going to have the opportunity to die a death that is as dramatic as Peter's. But the goal is the same nonetheless. You might ask, how then is God glorified in the death of the saints? Well, there's, I, I could preach a whole sermon, many sermons on that, but he is glorified in saving sinners. He's glorified in raising them from the dead, imperishable at the resurrection. He's glorified, as I mentioned, in, in, in their memorials, in, in the preaching of the gospel, and the testimony of their God-honoring lives. He's He's glorified as people reflect back on the deceased and talk about the kind of person they were at a family gathering or a casual conversation in all the stories that we pass down about, about the deceased and who died in Christ. But what we're emphasizing this morning is much more narrow in focus, and we're not so passive in it. The question I'm asking is this, will you and I honor God in our day, in that dying day, some of us, again, will die quickly and we won't even have the opportunity to think about what we're doing in the midst of it. It might be a quick heart attack. It might be a car accident. But most of us are, are going to make this, this, this slow trip toward the tomb. Are you armed? Are you ready? Have you purposed in your heart? Are you are you resolved to honor Christ in that moment? Christ wants you to come to that hour courageously, and he wants you to come with a faithful confidence. You understand what I mean by that? Faithful meaning you are full of faith. You're engaged with the Christ whom you have trusted and you are engaged in the truth that he has given to you and you put your feet on that truth and upon that Savior as the unfailing Savior that he is and you stand firm. You're not panicked. You're not terrified. You're not shrinking away. You're not looking for something to, to, to somehow uh, 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 take you into some other state so that you don't have to face what's about to happen to you. No, you're, you're encountering this thing and you, you, are, you are living it and I appreciate it. I appreciate so many people in this church and other places that I have had the privilege to go to their graveside as have many of you, I'm sorry, their bedside for weeks as they were, as they were making their way to the grave and during those weeks they were intentional, they were purposeful, they were transparent. They let you in, didn't they? To where their hope was. Some of the martyrs, some of the pastors that were, that were burned during the, 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 the Marian persecution in England were told in Fox's Book of Martyrs that they went to a fiery death, many of them right in front of their congregations. They would haul me right out there. And they would insist that you all come out to watch it. 
And they would pile the kindling up and pile the wood up and they would light it and it would inflame. And some of them had gunpowder hung around their necks and some of them did not. And sometimes the fire went out too fast. And, but what you see almost every time is that those pastors, those faithful pastors who were so committed to the truths that they had held to in life were in that moment conveying to their congregations, you can do this. You can do this. This is, this is possible for you. Take courage. Don't weep for me. Man, what a testimony. Don't hide people from your dying day, believer in Christ. Invite them into it. Have a memorial. And have as many people there as the Lord would see fit to allow. And let Christ be glorified and honored in your life and in your death. You see, God is glorified when we have an unfaltering confidence in Christ and that he will be faithful to us even through those deep waters. We should face it with, in rest and in peace. And I just want to give you four things practically. They're, they're brief, but, but four things that will enable you to, to stand firm in the dying day. Here they are. You ready? Number one, you need to prepare in advance. This is not the sort of thing you want to, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. No, spend your life preparing for your death. So many people lose their composure in death for the simple fact that they've been shutting themselves off from even thinking about it until, until it's at their doorstep. You don't want to do that. It is not intimidating to us as believers to die. So don't, don't avoid it. Don't crowd it out with activity. In fact, Ecclesiastes 7.2 says it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Why would it be better to go to a funeral than a party? Because that is the end of every man and the living take it to heart. Wise people think about their death. They think much about their death. They anticipate it. They expect it. Secondly, you need to let go of this world. You need to let go of this world. And that's a very intentional thing. It's very intentional. The Bible says we are not to love the world, nor the things in the world. We are to love Christ. He is to have our highest affections. There is to be no competition in your life, not by any material object, not by life itself, not by any relationship you enjoy, not with a, a spouse, not with a child, not with an aunt or an uncle, or anyone else. There is no competition for first place in your life. Christ is your life. He is everything. And if we are to die without fear and to bring God glory, we've got to be proactive and intentional in this. And I love, I'm just drawing on the words of Martin Luther here, in a mighty fortress is our God. You remember that great, that great stanza where, where he said, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. He was talking in that text about letting go of the world. Let your goods go, he says. Most of us get this. Stuff is just stuff. We're not to store up treasures on earth. We don't cling to our material goods. We don't cling to our money. 
God is good. He gives every good gift from above. It's to be enjoyed with gratitude. We love him for it, but we're not going to trade the pleasure and the joy that we have in him for idolizing the stuff that he's given to us. Do you see how backwards that is? To love the gift more than the giver. We're about the giver. And we live open-handed with the gifts that he gives to us. Never allow these things to possess us. We may possess them, but they do not possess us. And we lived with that open hand. Now, here's the harder part. Here's the harder part. You've got to let kindred go. You've got to let kindred go. Now, what's kindred? That's family. These are your friends. These are those whom you love the most. These are the relationships. These are the the true treasures in life, right? You know that. I know that. There's no question. Life is about relationship. But you have got to entrust not only your material goods to someone else, but you must give up your kindred to God himself. You've got to learn to, to, to hand them over to him. And again, you want to be involved in this even now in this life. Don't wait till then. You'll only squish the life out of your kids if you live as a panicked parent, not allowing them to do anything because the chance might take them away from you. Listen, even those relationships that are nearest and dearest to us, Relationships with a spouse, relationships with your extended family, relationships with your children, even those relationships that are nearest and most precious are not grounds to cling to this life when it comes. Again, none of this saves you from the pain of that moment. I get it. John 21, if you just look down at verses 20 and 21, here, here, as Jesus and Peter walk down the beach and they're having this conversation, John is, John is following behind them. And Peter gets a little insecure at all this talk about crucifixion. <laughs> and he looks back here at John and he, he says, hey, what about him? What's going to happen to him? Jesus said to Peter in verse 21, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. What was he saying? Hey, Peter, this is between you and me. This is about our relationship. And what I do with someone else, whether it be our brother John here or your children, your wife, your best friend, that's between me and them. What is that to you? You see, Jesus draws a line in the sand and he says, you know, your care and concern for uh, those who are around you on this planet, there's a stopping point. He's first, he's foremost, and at some point you have got to pry open those hands and say, Lord, I will trust you. I will trust you with them. Even those who don't know Christ, I will trust you with them. 
I put them in your hands. They are yours. Let goods and kindred go. Lord, you are merciful, you are compassionate, you are faithful, and I will leave them in your hands. And it takes my breath away when I think about those whom I love so much. When I think about that moment and I project out. But do it, we must. And he is faithful. And this is another way we honor him in death, huh? When we hand our kids into his hands, when we hand our unsaved relatives into his hands and we say, Lord, I entrust them to you. You are God, I am not. You are wise, I am not. You are good, I am not. You are able, I am not. These were just a stewardship given to me for a time and I lay them back in your hands. Help me to honor you in this way because when we put our most valuable things in the hands of God, what we say about him is that he is ultimately trustworthy and that he is ultimately good. Oh, we must let goods and kindred go. So we prepare in advance. We let go of this world. Thirdly, we cling to Christ. You let go of the things of this life, and then you are going to take those hands, and you are going to extend them heavenward, whether figuratively or not, and you are going to lay hold again of the Lord Jesus Christ with a white-knuckle grip because, beloved, all that he has done for us will not fail us. And all that he has spoken to us, he will, in fact, bring to pass. Wasn't this the very purpose of Christ that spilled his blood? You can read it right here. He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? So he could lose us in the end? No, so that he might bring us to God. What did Jesus say as he gave up his spirit on the cross? It is what? Finished. What are we told in the scriptures? That we are not only saved by Christ, but we are kept for Christ. What do we know from Philippians? That what he began in us, that good work, he will in fact complete until the day of Christ Jesus. Listen, beloved, he who predestined you before time and purchased you with his blood will not lose you in the end. John 6, he says it over and over and over again. It is the Father's will that I raise up my, my people in the end. That is the Father's will. Let me ask you, does Jesus ever fail the Father in obedience? Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And that poignant question he poses to her, what is it? Do you believe this? You see, it's all about trusting the word of God and the God of his word. Isn't Jesus called the good shepherd? I think so. He's not the lousy shepherd, right? John 10, he's the good shepherd. And what makes the good shepherd good is that he never loses his sheep. Not a one of them, the text says. Not one, not a single one. 
He says, there's nobody who can pluck my sheep out of my hand. And the Father, who's greater than all, has got them. And they're not going anywhere. Weren't we promised in John 8, or Romans 8, I think we were, verse 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? And didn't Paul, by the Spirit, capstone that chapter at the very end, saying that neither life nor death nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? John 14, didn't Jesus say, hey, shake off your fears, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I love this. He goes, if it were not true, I would tell you. <laughs> I'm going. And I will prepare a place and I will receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That is a promise, my friend. Peter says we have an inheritance which is imperishable, unfading, reserved in heaven for you. It's under lock and key. It's safe. It's not going anywhere, and you're not going anywhere. Beloved, we cling to Christ and no one but Christ. He alone is the mediator between God and man, and he alone is the savior of the world, and he alone is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he alone is the resurrection and the life, Christ in your right hand and Christ in your left. You cling to Christ. And yes, it's true. We have proven ourselves to be great sinners, but he is a greater savior still. And so we can declare with David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that is a, that is, he's talking about the world in which we live. There's the shadow of death hanging over your head all of the time. He says, I fear no evil for you are with me. Beloved, what do you have to fear? We saw the inevitability of death. We saw our confidence in death that God is in control. We saw our goal in death, which is to glorify Christ. And finally and fourthly, our mandate until death. Our mandate until death. And this, I'm, I am not going to prolong more than 30 seconds. It's very simple. Look at it again in our text. Now Jesus said this signifying what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. That is our mandate until death. You follow me. If any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? Follow me. I love that bumper sticker. I see it from time to time, usually when I'm tailgating. And it, and it, and it, and it says, do you follow Jesus this closely? Have you seen that? It's a good bumper sticker. Lordship salvation on a bumper. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. It's a good idea. Peter had another 30 years, and Peter was faithful by God's grace to do just this. And Peter, in fact, honored the Lord in his death. It'll be the same for you, my friend, if you know Christ, and I want to take just a moment as we, as we wrap up to speak to those this morning who have not yet come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And I would say this to you, if you want no fear in death, if you want to shake that thing, 
You've got to come to Christ. There's no other way out. And the Bible speaks, in fact, of death, not only as a separation from your body, but in the end, fully and finally separation from God and under his judgment. And I want to call you, my friend, to trust in Christ. Do you not see that he's a good savior? Do you not see that he has planned and prepares and provides everything for his people? Why would you reject a God like that? Friend, do you see what God has done for you in his son? And I tell you, if you reject the gospel, if you turn away yet again from that truth, do you see that the ground you're standing on is just a thin crust that hangs over an eternal hell? Do you see that God knows the time of your death Do you see that God knows the way in which you're going to die? Did you ever realize how much you're hanging like a thread from God's hand and your next breath, your next beat, he could drop you today. And graveyards are filled with people who thought they had another day. They thought they had a future. They thought they had a time when they would be able to choose. I tell you, there's urgency to this. Today is the day of of salvation. Now is the acceptable time, says the Bible. And I want to read a text to you and leave you with this because the text is a glorious invitation. Isaiah 55 and verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Do you hear the time factor in that? There's a time when you won't be able to find him. It'll be too late. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. To our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Do you see the kind of God God is? He's a God who receives sinners. I'm fond of saying it, that sinners are the only kind of people God saves. They're the only kind of people, those who think they're righteous and don't need God or can find some other path to God, do not understand the stipulations of the scripture which say there is no other mediator, there is no other way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And my plea with you this morning is that you would look to this gracious, compassionate, and forgiving God. And I, 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 I tell you, on, on, the, on the sound teaching of scripture, on the assurance of a God who cannot lie, he will receive you, he will forgive you, he will embrace you, and he will take you to himself no matter what you've done. There is salvation in no other name but Christ alone. And if you come to him, he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray together as the music team comes forward. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we lift up you, your name again. We exalt you for all that you are as the sinless Son of God the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Redeemer of mankind, the one who took our sins upon the tree and bore 
the wrath of God in our place, the stroke that we were due, that we might be brought all the way to God, reconciled, adopted, accepted in the beloved. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness in, in this text and helping us think through our death. And Lord, we hear your, your tenderness in, in providing for us as we look forward to that day, knowing that you will be there with us. You never forsake your people. You're with us always. And Lord, grace will be sufficient in that day to stand firm in confidence that all that you have said to us and all that you have done for us will in fact prove sufficient so that we might overwhelmingly conquer through Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, go, be comforted, know that God's got you. Rejoice in the God of your salvation and live while you have breath. Right? Fear not, my friends, fear not. He's got us. God bless you.